Okay, we'll let the uh, we'll let the folks come in this evening. Uh, everyone, we are in for a treat this evening in many many ways. Uh, we have Dr. Christine Morgan with us this evening from the Soil Health Institute. We're going to get into that, and I just want to let everyone know that um, the 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 fabulous film crew from the Kiss the Ground movie has been here on the farm all week. And they are here this evening set up. So not only are we recording this through uh, the webinar, but it's being professionally and recorded with video and audio. So this is going to be a really good one. So Christine, you picked a good one to come on tonight. So thank you for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Rick, for the invitation. Yeah, yeah. So you know the way the way I always get this going is uh, giddy up, let's go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, Christine, I'm going to ask you what I ask everyone. What What's on your mind right now? Right now? Well, right now, I actually, I just finished uh, presenting to our Soil Health Institute science team about all the climate smart ag uh, projects that have been funded recently. What the USDA has put in, what, almost $3, $3 billion yes. um, to jumpstart climate smart agriculture in the United States. And Honestly, that's on my mind. I'm thinking, how how are we going to get uh, so many people to change their practices and adopt soil health management practices and regenerative yeah. agriculture? And that's a great lead into tonight's conversation. First of all, Christine, let's let's explain who the Soil Health Institute is, okay? For those folks that don't yeah. know, give us a quick, you know, the elevator the elevator pitch of, of who Soil Health Institute is. Okay, not very good at elevator pitches, Rick, but. Soil you do whatever you want to do. Soil Health Institute is a small nonprofit. Our mission is to safeguard and enhance the vitality and productivity of soils through scientific research and advancement. What does that mean? That means right now there's an army of about 20 of us. Our headquarters is in North Carolina, but mm. our scientists, we have about 15 PhD soil scientists, agronomists, and an ag economist. And they're located pretty much all over the contiguous United States. And then we have one soil health educator that's in Canada and one in Alabama. Awesome. So, yeah. So we're small and we're moving and grooving. <laughs> well, that's okay. Size doesn't matter. Sometimes when you're small, you can be nimble and quick. So um, that's a good thing. Um, you know, you brought up the 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 money that the the government's going to come up with which is a great a great idea and a great notion um but you know the one thing that i i talk about a lot on this podcast is the teaching we've got to be able to get teachers taught so those people can then teach the farmers so tell us about how you're doing that well we do have funding for that and climate smart agriculture project projects but at FHI, we have um, we kind of have two strategies for teaching. One is at the institute, we're soil scientists, agronomists, and uh, ag, ag one ag economist. Won't claim more than one. Mm -hmm. But you know, our expertise is soil science, how to measure soil, how management practices interact with soil and soil health, and how we can measure that. And then we also have done some partial budget economics on um, you know. What, what is that cost-benefit analysis of adopting soil health? So, so our strategy is to develop tools like partial budget economics, 
soil measurement and monitoring that's affordable and reasonable and scientific, locally relevant, right? Because like a farmer measuring soil health in, in uh, uh, Oklahoma is not going to get the same measurements as you right. are, right? That's right. That's, that's a very good point. We have to get yes. the context in there. The context is so important, Rick. And so mm -hmm. part of it is to bring our expertise in the table, but the biggest part of it for our education, our strategy is to find farmers that have been successful in adopting regenerative ag and soil health management practices in a local area and magnify their voice and their experience, their wins, their losses, but most importantly, their how-to, because we can't helicopter in and tell anybody how to do anything, right? No, no. All we can do is try to find success stories, amplify those voices, and then provide tools for those that are interested and experimentation. Yeah, that that's an excellent point. So, you know, you might use the word mentor or ambassador or somebody yeah. who's within that area. And I think that is a great idea because heaven forbid, I go to uh, Mississippi and tell them how to raise rice, for example. Right. I'm not going to fly very well. Yes. So it's got to be regionalized. And, and I think you could put the country in like eight or nine regions probably and and maybe have a a a team leader in each of those regions but this teaching notion is what is so important because if that if that farmer um tries something new that they don't even understand and they don't have any success with it i'm afraid they won't come back and and i'm sure you see that you've seen that in your time and you want to prevent that from happening Yes, Rick, I'm I am currently headquartered in North Carolina, but I am from Texas. I've lived born and raised in Texas, worked at Texas A&M University for 15 years. And when I was there, we were doing some um, uh, interviews of farmers. And one of the interesting thing is I had a sociologist and an economist and we had thought about all these questions. And really what we were trying to get at was like, what is the difference between adopters and this is the central part of Texas and non-adopters. Yep. Boy, we had such a beautiful conversation with both focus groups. And then the interesting thing was, is that the, we did one focus group of the, of the non-adopting farmers, not that hadn't adopted soil health management practices. Right. And we had done this focus group with those that had adopted. And we were getting to the very end of the focus group of farmers that had adopted and I couldn't figure it out. I could not figure out the difference between the groups. They they both felt like they had a very strong moral compass to yeah. um, take care of the resources and environment for future generations. They both said that everything they had done was uh, all their choices were economically driven. The best part is farmers that had not adopted said they couldn't afford to adopt, even though they want to. And those that had adopted said they wouldn't be in business today if they hadn't. Yeah. And so it was just killing me. I was trying to figure out how, what is the difference, the fundamental yeah. difference between these two groups? Well, at the end, I was asking questions. And then I realized in the group of farmers that had adopted soil health management practices, even though they were from eight different counties in Texas, they all had each other's cell phone number. Yeah. And the number one thing that they were saying, when I realized what was going on and I started kind of probing into it, they were saying that, you know, a lot of times you hear about yield lags and things like that associated with adopting no-till and cover crops. And the some of the farmers said, well, you know, we call that the tuition, the price of learning. 
But he said, if you, if you hook up with farmers that have already adopted and know how to do it, then they've already paid tuition and you get, you get entrance for free. And, and being a soil scientist, my favorite quote is one gentleman said, you know, it's not the soil's fault, the yield lag. He said, it's my fault because I've got to figure out a different way of treating the soil and a different way of farming. So anyway, I'm no, totally uh, sold on the, on the farmers teaching farmers concept. Yeah, that's perfect because this movement, this regenerative movement is being led, I believe, by the farmer, which is, I think, at the right spot. And it's total transparency. I mean, when you go to these soil health events around the country and uh, around the world, for that matter, that that those speakers who have been asked to come in and you're one of those speakers that are asked to come in, we lay it all out there on the line. I mean, it's total transparency and we're trying we're but we have to be so careful, Christine, that we don't offend the way the farmers are currently farming because this is their heritage. I mean, this is the way their dad did it. This is the way their grandpa did it. And we cannot offend them. It's just trying to show them one or two different ideas to take home and and start with something. Yeah. And, and then that's, you know, that's where I keep saying when I go somewhere and speak at, in, in a group of 500 people, I, you know, I can get everybody charged up. But then Rick gets in his truck and drives home there, that we need <laughs> that support group to then carry out, you know, those practices. Yeah, I think it's so important to meet people where they are and help them figure out, you know, just yeah. provide them the tools where they want to go. One of the things I've also learned, um, I am just a soil scientist. I'm not a farmer. My husband worked in extension. He was a state cotton specialist for a long time. So I, I listened to a lot of what he says. But honestly, one of the things I've learned through graduate school, working with farmers and and um, at the Institute and when I was an academic is that farmers are pretty capable people and you know it just it and and they're very innovative and they're thoughtful and they're not just like I'm just a soil scientist my husband's just an agronomist but you know when I talk to farmers I they're business people they're supply chain they're logistic yeah. I mean they're doing all of it yeah, and these well, are some really non-linear thinking minds that are incredibly innovative and creative. Yeah, but don't don't say yourself short and say you're <laughs> just a soil scientist. Come on, I know what you're trying to say though, but you're you're well-rounded too. So, okay, so let's go now somewhere a little different here. Let's talk about your days in academia, and then what's that compare now to your days outside of academia so let's start with academia what what kind of structure what, what was your you said texas a&m um mm -hmm. give, give us what what how you came into this world prepared as a i'm a soil scientist you know what i mean well you know i'll start before academia when i went to grad when i went to college i was pre-law and pre -law. Okay. Pre -law. and I had chosen a science degree because I knew I was good at science and I thought okay I can get into law school if I get a bachelor's of science and then I don't have to do so great on the LSAT they'll just take me into law school because I've had some different experiences <laughs> that's called and, a, that's called an exit plan is what that's yeah. called okay so <laughs> I took soil science on a dare from my brother and I fell in love with it and I've never been able to get, I got a minor in law at University of Wisconsin because I thought I could still go to law school. 
but I just chose soil science. So, or soil science found me. And uh, when I was done at University of Wisconsin, I got a, a faculty, tenure track faculty job at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. And I'm a soil physicist. And wow. I was always very interested in how uh, water moves across farm fields and how simple management changes can completely reroute the soil water balance in a farm field. And I was working on modeling it, but what I realized is that you can't model it without really good measurement. So really most of my career, what I'm probably most well known for is sensor development. So I worked on sensors, we can measure soil properties across fields, precision agriculture, Uh, measuring and mapping soil properties for both precision ag and for modeling. And I'm also a soil physicist. I don't know what you know about soil structure, but that's really my my heart and soul is I just, I love how soil forms aggregation and these secondary aggregates. Mm -hmm. And I love how it changes water, uh, how water moves through soil across fields. And in that, I started probably the last four years as an academic. I, with a colleague of mine out of Australia, we started this concept called global soil security. And the idea of that is, is that, you know, soil is in this nexus of existential challenges like water security, food security, right. human health, biodiversity. I mean, how cool is it to be a soil scientist these days? We're so important, you know, our, our that? media that we study. Oh. And, but part of the soil health or the soil security concept was that soil science needed to integrate policy, economics, and sociology better. And as I started working with that globally and with different policy uh, folks, I just realized that there's so much going around the world trying to solve so so many of these existential challenges. And if if I believe, and I do believe, that soil is at the root of many of these challenges, like help soil can solve, help solve a lot of them, then soil science knowledge needs to get out of academia and into the world of problem solving. And I tried to figure out how to do that as an academic and there weren't any real clear avenues. And this opportunity opened up at the Soil Health Institute. So I took it and um, I'm in my dream job now. (laughs) Wow. So, so do you think that do you think that it, that that well I don't I don't know how deep we want to go here but would, would Texas A&M have gotten you to this point? Um you know I learned a lot at Texas A&M. I was a teacher for 15 years of uh both like um K through 12. I was the I organized the 4H and the FFA land judging contests and soil judging contests. Mm-hmm. I was a soil judging coach. I taught undergraduate and graduate classes. I even taught extension classes like master naturalist and um, uh, master gardener classes. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I just, I don't know, those experiences really help help me learn how to communicate with different folks and think about how to um, share my enthusiasm and love for soils with others to, you know, tell them interesting things so they get hooked like I do. <laughs> So, so I you, think that was really beneficial for me. You just sleep, eat, breathe soil. It's all you do. It's pretty nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Well, yeah. all right. We've got, we have a lot, we have a, a listener here that's on, I think, every podcast. Ed Bourgeois. Ed, how you doing this evening? Um, 
Christine, Ed would like to know if you folks use the uh, the Haney Soil Health Test. Do you folks use that? We use um, one part of the Haney Soil Test. Okay, go ahead and explain that. So we had this project that we've just wrapped up called the North American Project to Evaluate Soil Health Measurements. Mm-hmm. And we looked, so the big question was, is what, what is this minimum suite of soil health measurements? What are the most effective measurements to, to uh, monitor soil health? And then of those effective measurements, what's practical for like a national scale assessment of soil health? Yep. We Perfect. had 124 research sites in Canada, United States, and Mexico. These research sites had um, at least eight years of continuous kind of conventional ag production wherever they were. And then there were treatment. These are traditional research ag plots, right? You mean like tillage chemistry? Is that what you mean by traditional? Yeah, like, yeah, like conventional ag, like uh, conservation tillage and regular fertility and things like that. Okay. And then these sites had treatments like reduced to no tillage adding cover crops, adding organic amendments, all sorts of different things. And all of these plots were um, at a minimum of eight years old, average of 15 years old, and some were 150 years old. Like This is pretty plot. cool. Yeah. And we went out in the spring and we collected soil samples from all of them. And we looked at the differences in all, like over 30 measurements of soil and soil health. And we looked at all of them and we looked and we did a lot of statistical analysis. We talked to labs and we kind of came up, we recently came up with our own recommendation of a minimum suite of soil health measurements where we can measure and monitor soil health at scale, make it affordable to farmers and to stakeholders that are not farmers, um, that are regionally appropriate. So they, they work everywhere on all soil types and all the climates that we tested. And the main thing is that we want them accessible and affordable. And so one of the measurements this, the Haney test makes is 24 hour respiration, yep. or we call it potential carbon mineralization test. Mm-hmm. And so we like that test. It's a good estimate of like the activity of soil. So there's three measurements we take, carbon concentration, mm-hmm. Uh, the 24-hour respiration, yep. and ag- aggregate stability. Perfect. So CO2 burst and aggregate stability. And carbon concentration. All right, I'm going to ask you about the carbon concentration. Oh, there's lots to talk about there, huh? Yeah, I want, I want to, I'm going to come right back. I want to show you something. Okay. You seen this? Uh, it this, looks like a breathalyzer. <laughs> this is Dr. Rick Haney's uh, instant CO2 burst. You put a canister in the ground. Okay. And then you hook this on and you can take, you can count, you can get the, the CO2 uh, live reading of what's oh. going on. And what's cool about this is if you did it on, I mean, we're dry here, Christine, we're in the mid and we are dry, but if you would happen to get a rain event, whew, the CO2 burst just goes through the roof and you can do it with this thing right here. Well, we like to do it in the lab because, you know, if you, you know this, that if your soil is warm versus cool. Oh, um, yeah. Different initial moisture. So we're trying to standardize it, but that's pretty cool. That's a cool measurement. Yeah. I, I've seen that. It is. 
it's a breathalyzer for the soil. <laughs> it is. It is. And I can't remember what Rick calls it, but anyway, maybe he's listening and he'll he'll tell me. Okay, now I'm going to ask you, you might be the first person to answer this question. I ask this question everywhere I go. Okay. And I always sit back and wait for an answer and there isn't one. You're okay. making me nervous, Rick. Here, here we go. <laughs> All right. I want to know what methods available to measure carbon in the soil profile accurately, repeatably, and cheaply. Go right ahead. In situ. What? I'm sorry? In situ, in this, like out in the field real time. Yep. Um, I think the best measurement that's available right now is VIS, VIS NIR spectroscopy. Yeah. How cheap is that? Well, it's a proximal sensor. So you don't want to buy a cheap sensor because then you'll get, you know, what you pay for. So the idea with proximal sensor is you buy an instrument that's not so cheap and then you use it a lot of times, right? So it's a fixed cost. Okay. So it's not something that you would want to own as, as an individual. Um, the sensor that I like to use is $60,000. Mm -hmm. However, um, I'm working with a, a colleague that has a startup company and he's, uh, you know, we're working on looking at less expensive spectrometers that run about 10 to $20,000. Mm -hmm. But again, no, but it's not, it's not something you buy on your own. It's something that, you know, a consultant or somebody would own or a company. Yeah. Or, okay, so would do you, would you feel comfortable that, and we got to get into your list of, of measurements here because you've only mentioned two or three of them, but would you be comfortable then using that technology in a, I don't like this term, but in a carbon market, I wish they would have gone some other direction, sure. but but if you were gonna be in that market, is this viable? Yes, we're developing this technology for carbon market. In fact, the technology's there, it's all about the engineering and the models behind it. And so that's, we are actively working on that. I think uh, there's already a few of these that are commercial. Um, the particular uh, person that I'm working with, uh, I, you know, He's he has a commercial carbon quantification company, but uh, probably the actual using the sensor as part of that process is, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half out. Yeah. See, I mean, there's a lot of engineering to make it robust and, you know, get all the bugs out. See, I, I, I'm so glad you're on here this evening. You and I have not met before, but we're going to have to. But you've you've got i just thought i did not realize how deep the shi is here i mean you guys are out at the the forefront here i hope so yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is good stuff now i want to tell you another something else last year um i'm i live in the state of indiana and we have we had one of the best a state soil health specialist I've ever met. And I've not met all of them, but her name, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, oh my gosh, I just forgot her name. <laughs> uh, Stephanie. Now I'll, I'll remember her name in a minute, but she came out. So I was not around. She wanted to do uh, aggregate stability checks and she wanted to do water infiltration rates and she wanted to do earthworm counts on our farm. We've been doing this, this regenerative for about 14 years. And um, she came out 
And our water infiltration rate average on the farm is 20 inches an hour. Our aggregate stability is between six and eight inches deep. Stephanie McLean, thank you. Thank you, Christine. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sorry, Stephanie, I forgot your name. Wow, but I, we <laughs> lost her to Minnesota. That's where she grew up. So anyway, I hope she's doing well. But anyway, 20 inches an hour water infiltration rates, uh, six to eight inches of aggregate stability, which that right there we could talk an hour on because there's so much that I don't understand. And then the last thing was the earthworm counts of about 1.5 million per acre. So it's un, it's crazy what we've got going on. So let's go to aggregate stability. Tell everyone why this is important. Okay. Uh, okay. Aggregate stability is my favorite. Good. Particularly important for silt loam soils, which is much of the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, so soils are made of sand, silt, and clay, right? Like this stuff and some organic matter, but mostly mineral stuff. And um, when they're individual particles, they're very erodible. Mm -hmm. And they also, especially in the Midwest, they'll surface seal, right? You'll get a rainfall after plowing, especially you'll get a rain and you get this seal. Right. And so soil aggregates, obviously I call them dirt clods for folks that don't like to use the word peds or aggregates, but they're essentially, um, you know, those individual sand, silt and clay all glued together into little balls. And those little balls are important because when you have a lot of it on the surface of the soil, then you also have a lot of these interfaces. I ped interfaces is kind of the sciencey word, yeah. but you have these interfaces between the aggregates, and so the water can get in. That's why you have twenty centimeters an hour or twenty inches an hour infiltration. But if your soils, if your aggregates are not water stable, meaning when it rains, your soil goes from this to this, yeah. right? Water can get in between my fists, but water's gonna have a hard time getting in between my hands now. And so this is a water-stable aggregated soil and a non-water-stable aggregated soil. And Excellent. that's the gist of it. But to get aggregate stability, what do you need? You need organic matter. You need a lot of microbe poop, which is really sticky, right? And and um, earthworm castings will, will be very scientific. <laughs> yeah. And they're glue, right? And they help. And then wetting and drying, like y'all know, uh, y'all live in an area where it freezes, right? And in the spring, when you come out after the soil is frozen, it's in these little aggregates. And the question is, how stable are they going to be now against that rain? Right. And so you need, and plowing destroys aggregate stability and organic matter wetting and drying roots, uh, microbial activity, all of those things uh, create and enhance aggregate stability. Yeah. But you know, silt loam soils, they're the hardest to get water stable aggregates. That silt is is uh, hard stuff when you, compared to other yeah. soils across the world. Yeah, I like to think of it as you fill a, a glass jar full of marbles. And yes. you got all kinds of airspace in there. So. Rick I prefer to use M&Ms. Well, yeah, because then you can eat them. Yeah, yeah it is. Right. You're right, right on. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, you know, there's so, the problem here is so many times we don't think of the soil as a living, breathing organism. No, so yeah. The more aggregate stability you have, the more room you can hold water and the more room you can hold oxygen. Now, 
You're the soul scientist, not me. And I make it, I make this very You're simple. You're good though. You're doing good. <laughs> well, I know that I need to maximize photosynthesis so we can pump as much sugar in the ground and as much oxygen in the ground. I know that. Now you can go deeper with that if you wish and go right ahead. But there's, there, that's what we've got to get to, to then feed this microbial community and kick the, this whole thing into overdrive. You nailed it. Photosynthesis is the key. And then not just photosynthesis, not disturbing the soil. Once that photosynthate yeah. is put in the soil, I, I came up with kind of like a, a metaphor a couple of months ago that I kind of like, you know, if you think about these aggregates forming, right, they're the homes for the microbes, the microbes find places on those aggregates, some like a lot of oxygen, some like less, some like more water, some like less, right? So they find their home and they're happy and they start doing what they do. What do they do? They cycle nutrients, they cycle carbon, they help with pathogen suppression. You know, they're like, it's like yep. this living crazy organism, right? Of all microbes. But then what happens when you plow? It's kind of like humans, right? We live in a city. I yep. don't, you don't, but just think about a city or a town. Everybody's got a house and everybody's, some people are lawyers, some people are nurses, but you're taking care of your community. And now just think every time a hurricane or a wrecking ball comes through and tears down everybody's house. Yeah. What do you do for the next year? You spend time rebuilding your house. You're not nursing. You're not being a doctor. You're not being a lawyer. Right. You're not grocery shopping, right? You're exactly. building your house back. And that's kind of the way I think about aggregate stability and, and allowing things to, to work the way they need to work in the soil. Okay. So this is a big topic. Almost every podcast tillage. This is big. I mean, we, here at this farm, we, 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 we've tried to eliminate tillage. I had to till just a little bit this year, a very small amount, but I'm trying to be 100% no-till and organic. I mean, this is hard. Wow. <laughs> this is hard. And we're doing this to scale, like 7,000 acres. Yeah. So the thing, though, that everyone wants to ask or, or they want to know is, okay, then how long is it take for that system to heal and are we allowed to do a tillage event once every three years once every year what i mean what's the is there an answer to that there is an answer rick um based on what i've seen in our north american project to evaluate soil health measurements not all of our treatments were 100 percent no-till some were reduced tillage systems where they were tilling um some was just reduced annual tillage and some was reduced tillage every other year, every three years. Okay. And what we found is any reduction in tillage was useful. Obviously, going from moldboard plowing and, and disking and chiseling mm -hmm. to no-till was the biggest change. But right. there were statistically significant and real changes in soil health measurements with reducing tillage. So what I tell folks, the way I think about it is um, sometimes you do have to tell, if, you know, just do the least that you can do and, you know, you'll get better at it. Like yeah. it's not, this is, this is not rocket science. It's harder than rocket science. Yeah. So it's, there's art, there's learning to live with your biology. Everybody's soil climate and cropping system is slightly different and you are different. Every human has a different personality and different tolerances and different decision-making. Yeah. So it's just about reducing and, and any reduction is beneficial. 
Yeah. Okay. So we all know, I mean, you're a data junkie, I'm sure. <laughs> and you got to have data. I mean, we're data junkies here too. So the first thing that we always try to recommend, and by the way, folks, anybody out there listening, live Q&A, we've got an awesome guest here this evening, Dr. Christine Morgan. Let's take advantage of her brain here and let's get some questions in the chat, okay? Hmm. All right, so so Christine, let, let's get that, let's get the line drawn, let's baseline the farm. We've been doing all this tillage, all this chemistry. We've heard all about regenerative farming. It's time to try something different. We're gonna collect the data, baseline ourselves, and now we're gonna move. Okay, so when do you see, so at, at that point, one of the, your, your criteria of soil health scores is water infiltration rate, aggregate stability. Those are easy to measure, very easy, very inexpensive to measure. Let's say you've got on that, that conventional tilled ground, you've got one inch infiltration. I don't even know if it's that good, but let's say it's one inch. How quick can you get to five or six inches? Okay, Rick, you're not going to like my answer here. It depends on your soil. Yeah, I, I get your climate. So let's say in the Midwest, right? Yeah. Probably most of the listeners are there. Let's I go to the I states. The I states. Okay. I, How about I, the I call I them the Val states, but okay. I'm from Texas. They're all the same to me. No, I'm just okay. kidding. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think you're going to see differences in one to two cropping cycles. Okay. One to two years. You okay. will see differences. I think that you'll see the most drastic difference probably about year four or five. I would agree. You know? And I mean, you tell you probably you've done this more than me. I've just measured stuff. But you know, I think um you know, folks in sandy soils, it's gonna it's gonna be harder to see differences. And really, like shrink swell, heavy clay soils. You know, again, it just depends on what you're starting with and how pulverized the soil is. At yeah. what, because one of the things that happens, right, is you could stop tilling, and you could kind of see some compaction and things. In fact, I was as one farmer. He's so inspiring. He's in uh, northern South Carolina. And I think he was doing 6,000 acres of cotton and he was still acquiring land, acquiring conventional. He's uh, no-till and um, cover crop. Mm -hmm. And he would tell me that when he acquires conventional, he won't stop tilling until he's got a good cover crop stand. Yeah. And so sometimes he would wait a year before he stopped tilling because he really felt like for his soils and systems, he had to have those roots in there. And so in his case, he would probably say it depends on the year, right? If I have a good cover crop, I'll see differences in a year. If I have a bad cover crop, I'll see differences in two years. So you yeah. know it, you know it, it it's just there's no straight answer to that. Yeah, I know. I know there's not. I I I I knew there wasn't. I just was curious what you were gonna say, and you just you just confirmed that. But that's that's the reality. I mean I mean, here where I live, we historically get 36 to 38 inches of rain a year. You go west of the Mississippi past the great state of Iowa and you're getting into 10 inches or less. I mean, it's it's a whole different ball game. And, and I understand it. And that's why it's so important the way you started off. If we're going to build some kind of a soil health score uh, chart or, or whatever you want to call it, it's got to be regionalized for soil types and climate. 
You yes. have to. Yes. Yeah. I can talk more about that, but there's a question in the chat from. Yeah, Ed's got another question. What's presently the best way to determine root exudation flow to learn the best functioning? Could could tech measure it in the future? See, we've got great questions from the audience. That's a good one. What do you got for him? All right, root flow. I mean, you got to have photosynthesis. So I would say biomass and green cover are your best indicators of how you're doing on root exudate. Yeah, yeah. See, I think, Christine, I think one day we're going to sit down with folks like you and we're going to give you the history of the farm. We're going to give you uh, the fertility programs we've been on, what we're currently doing. Uh, we're going to probably have a, a microbial score of maybe not identified microbia, but at least the count, the count that's there. And then you're going to say, I need to raise corn and my three worst weed problems are giant ragweed, water hemp and tail. And you're going to come up with a cocktail that's going to, that's going to lay out certain exudates that will then create environments that those weed seeds are not going to want to germinate in. That's where we're going. That's, that's brilliant. So I would alter your, your vision of the future. And I think it'll be people like you that actually say that information, not people like me, but I'll measure it for you, Rick. You can measure it. How about that? Because I like the sound of the metrics you've got working here, because this is where I fall into a little bit of not disbelief isn't the right word here, but a little reluctancy because I can't yet agree with how carbon is being measured in the profile accurately, but you might be onto something. Well, one of the problems that we get into accuracy is we have this old fashioned concept of measuring carbon like we measure nutrients, that you take a composite soil sample and then you mix it up and you send it to the lab and you take this one measurement. Yeah. And that one measurement is very accurate. But you know, what you don't like is the fact that that was a composite sample from a little bit of spot to yeah. represent a whole lot of spot. Right. And that's why I really like the idea of proximal sensing, which is sensing in the field in real time, mm -hmm. is then you have maybe an expensive instrument, but you can take hundreds of measurements very quickly. And so you can get spatial resolution for what you're looking for. And I think that's what I infer that you're yearning for is, is better spatial coverage of measurement. Now, when we take that better spatial coverage, it won't be as precise as that tiny little volume of soil yeah. that you're measuring in the lab. But we have shown it's called, I'm gonna get fancy, it's called the central limit theorem. But okay. if you have a mean, you can take one measurement and you don't know where you are close to that mean, right? But if you take a lot of measurements, yeah. it makes the bell curve and you know that the central limit is in the middle. And so that's the idea behind proximal sensing. It's not super precise, but you can take a lot and you can still get that mean very easily. All right. Now, hang on here. We got, we're, we got some questions coming, but you got me, you've got me going now. Okay. So now the way I understand carbon and, and please correct me anywhere I'm wrong here. There's three, three phases of carbon, right? Gas, liquid, solid. So which one, which one are you measuring here? We can measure the, in this, in the field, all proximal sensing is generally measuring the, the solid phase of carbon. 
Okay, so how are you measuring the, the liquid carbon that's coming out of those exudates? How are you measuring that? Okay, that's not liquid. That's actually solid. It's physical it math, yes. Okay. Liquid carbon is like dissolved carbon in water. So sometimes when there's a lot of tannins in the water or something and your water's brown, I, I would call that dissolved organic carbon. It's oh. actually still, it's actually still mass. It's not like salt where salt like disperses in water. Right. Carbon, it's just suspended solids primarily. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining. Okay. All right. So, okay. Uh, so now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So Ed, thanks for the question. Uh, we got Ludmila on. Ludmila's from Ukraine. Uh, Ludmila, how you doing this evening? Um, difference in bricks at 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. of the following day. So there is prop. Uh, yeah, I, I would. Yes, there's definitely differences in those bricks counts, depending on what time of day you and a lot of people understand that and they will mow hay. Uh, so what you're going to want to mow hay in the afternoon then instead of the morning is that or have I got that backwards? You're going to want to mow in the well, morning. You want to cut hay when it's got the highest protein content, right? Yeah. So probably yeah. in the morning before it starts making sugar. Yeah, right. I don't know. Okay. And then Ludmila wants to know also how, okay, so you've got the, are these sensors, are, are you digging a hole out in the field and, and okay, no, okay, go walk, take no. us through, take us through. Well, the modality that my colleague has, uh, the way he does it is they put it on like a drill. So think of like a, like a drill that you'd get at Home Depot, but just yep. with a longer thingy yep. job on it. Like you know? you're going to put in a water sensor probe? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you just. So there's a little window on the side that allows the sensor to look out and a little light. And the drill is really nice. Um, that's why I work with these guys because they're good engineers and good business people. And so you just put, you just drill it into the ground and then you right. turn the drill around and pull it out. So you could go pretty deep. I mean, the drill they've got goes to 45 centimeters, but you you could do deeper, if, you know, it depends on how long your reach, your reach is. You know? Right, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, so then this sensor is living in the field then while the, the no. Yeah, yeah. So literally think about a drill and the sensor is on top of the drill. And then you have, um, you know, fiber optics. And at the bottom of the drill is a little window. So wherever the bottom of that, mm -hmm. that drill bit is, is where you're measuring carbon. Okay. And it's spinning around. So it's getting a good average you know, measurement. Okay. So how many of these sensors are there per acre? It's just, it just depends on how many drills you walk out with. So it's in your hand and you just drill down, pull up, go somewhere else, drill down. There's a little GPS oh. on it. Just drill down and up. It's, you don't leave it in the field. You just go and you do it. So this is a great project for a grad student to be doing or something to be out drilling, drilling these holes. Yeah, it's moved away from grad students. It's totally in the in the business world now. But yeah, I mean, you know, take it from someone who's done a I've done I've augered my own holes. Uh -huh. I've probe. I've used hydraulics. The drill is about as easy as I've seen it happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we had some we 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 use uh, water soil uh or water sensors and they're 48 inches deep, the same thing. You just drill a hole down and stick the sensor in. And then so, you stick it in there and then you fill up the hole, right? And yeah. It stay, the sensor stays. So you got to mark it, farm around it. Yeah. But, 
oh my gosh, is that cool? Because then you can see how deep your roots are pulling. I mean, we've got corn and soybean roots pulling more than 48 inches deep. Oh, this corn, corn goes 150 centimeters, three feet easy. Yeah, yeah. And deeper. I mean, and I've worked in sorghum where we've gone five feet and still found sorghum roots. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. And I see we've put in neutron access tubes so that we can measure water pull out of the soil really deep. And we've easily seen cotton, corn, sorghum all go, you know, four feet deep. All right, we've talked a lot about carbon. Let's talk about nitrogen. What kind of sensors do you have for nitrogen? I don't know anything about nitrogen, Rick. You can't ask me those questions. Okay, okay. That, that's all. No, no, I'm teasing. Uh, I don't know a lot about nitrogen. Nitri nitrogen's tough. Most of the nitrogen in your soil is in the organic matter. So when you measure organic carbon, it's essentially the same thing as measuring your nitrogen pool. And the part of the nitrogen that the plants take up is the inorganic component, right? The part that gets mineralized from the organic matter. And that's pretty ephemeral. It says my internet connection's unstable. Can you still hear me okay? Yeah, it's it's good. Okay. Um, it's pretty ephemeral, you know, it comes and goes based on what the microbes are doing and what the water's doing. Um, and you've just totally tapped me clean on nitrogen. Um, no, I mean no, no that's okay. <laughs> So, okay, so let me ask you this then. When you, let's go back to the Haney test, because I really like the Haney test. There's okay. a lot of good information there. And in, 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 this, in this report, you get organic carbon and you get organic nitrogen and non-organic nitrogen. Okay, so if you, let's, let's you know, here's, here's inorganic nitrogen and here's organic down here. And if you shift into regenerative practices, are, are you gonna get a shift in that? You're gonna become heavier organic nitrogen then? Is that correct? Well, I mean, it depends on what you mean by regenerative. If you stop adding a bunch of inorganic nitrogen, yes. That's what I mean. <laughs> you are right. correct, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I it, mean, it, the farming practices that we have, when we add so much inorganic nitrogen, you know, it's just not, it's not efficient, it's convenient. Yeah. And it's easy, but it's it's not efficient. It's not, yeah. you know, we can improve a lot. That's right. You know, I, I've, I've learned through the, the my travels here that um, we have to stop thinking about feeding that cash crop. We have to think about feeding the soil and then let the soil feed the cash crop. I've and, heard that. I love that. Yeah. And I... You know, let's now talk about a little bit about because see, there's two things that I I want to spend the rest of my farming career on. I, I mean, I want to still do what I'm doing, but there's two more things I want to move into, and that's epigenetics, and and that's stimulant stimulants or hormones for certain microbial sectors that I can't seem to get turned on, like like bacterial. Uh, nitrogen forming microbes. We need to figure out how to get those turned on and you are going to look for something. You're going to help me here. I can see it. I had to, I had to remind myself what the word epigenetics meant. I got it there. I Wikipedia it. I'm good. <laughs> hey, epigenetics is basically the, the no, no altering of the DNA sequence and allowing a species or a plant to 
uh, adapt to your region. That's basically it. Isn't that like GMOs? Yeah. Yeah. Except non-GMOs. Natural GMOs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I want to do here, this is what we've done. I mean, I don't, you don't, I don't know how much you know about me, but we, we test, I, I, there's not a lot of folks I can visit with about what I'm doing because I don't know very many people doing it. So we go, we do our own testing. So what we did, we went to Colorado. Well, we didn't go to Colorado, but there's a USDA building in Colorado that houses all of the seeds pretty well known to man and woman. And we applied for 10 varieties of soybeans that are off patent because you can't bend run beans unless they're off patent. So these are 35 year old genetics. Okay. Yep. Uh -huh. they, they give you a hundred seeds. So we grew them out, hand, hand picked them, grew them out, hand picked them, grew them out again. And now we have, 40 acres planted of we trimmed the 10 down to five based on the way I, I didn't like the way they were growing or the way they, yeah. they looked or whatever. Okay, so we are trying to get a soybean that is adapting to our system. Because when you look at the genetics today, they are adapting for high fertility and high tillage and we don't do either one of those. We have not added any synthetic P or K to our farm in nine years now. I think I think that that is a real shortcoming of breeding programs. Is there breeding in these systems that we want to get away from? And they're selecting plants and this like they're so baby, right? Um, or or you might even say not baby. They're just so like engineered. Their environment is so engineered, and we're picking from there. And then, but we're asking folks to consider a less engineered environment, but yep. the genetics aren't maybe um, yeah. optimal for them. You know what I think is happening? I think, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is being done on purpose, but I think through their breeding programs, the genetics are losing uh, the association with the mycorrhizal fungi. And that is what's becoming the shortfall of those hybrids in systems like ours. Because, oh, I haven't thought about that, but yeah, I think that's a valid hypothesis. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, we need to do some testing on that. We need to, I believe, um, is it Jill Clapperton or is it, um, I think it might, or is it Wendy Tahiri? It's one or the other. I don't remember. I'm sorry. I apologize. One of those two was working on testing genetics to see if they had mycorrhizal associations. And I think the test is like five or $6,000 a piece. So I don't know if that price has come down, but here's the way I rationalize these things, Christine. I like to go up to 50,000 feet and look down. So when I have a, a seed salesman come and says, you know what, Rick, well, I want, I'd love to put a test plot out and we're gonna put the latest and greatest things we've got in, in your test plot every single hybrid in that test plot yields less than the hybrids I have in the field growing that I've picked the way I want to pick them. Yeah. So that just tells me there's something going on. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, I, I'm not saying anything's being done on purpose. I just think it's, yeah. it's happening through the way they're breeding the, the hybrids these days. 
you need to talk to your local plant breeders and get them going on this breeding now, I, regenerative I, systems i have talked to a couple of the 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 regional seed companies and they are actually going to start allocating some funds toward a a regenerative part of their breeding program so good get maybe the, something can happen get the land grants doing it too get on to those people yeah we, we need to do that we need to do that yeah. so ed ed's got yeah ed's a, a fan club of epigenetics i love it and and christine we're doing the same thing with cover crops we're we're keeping our own seed now and and i can i can see it i can see it I happening mean, you're doing plant breeding like right like the very first corn that humans cultivated you know, it didn't it didn't give a lot of corn, right? There was selection over the years right. for the environment and the tree. You're doing the same thing. Right. I think it's fantastic. It's very inspiring, Rick. Well, thank you. I thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, Lude Mila has got uh, either a, a question or a comment here. Are cultivating those five separately or or as a land race? Uh, I believe she. Yes, we're, we I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Lude Mila, and Again, I don't know if this is correct or not, but I am not going to treat them as separate varieties. I am going to mix the five that I picked and we're going to let them over time create their own their own one species, let's say. I don't know how else to say variety. it. Variety. Yeah, their own variety. So, yes, I am going to land race it. I love that notion. I've been thinking about this a long time and I'm actually going to do the same thing on corn, except I think what I'm, I'm, I've already started this year on the corn and I started with open pollinator and this, I don't know, this genetics is what a thousand years old. I don't know. It, I mean, it's, it's a long way out there, but we, I'll tell you, you walk out in that field and you cannot believe the variations you see in that field you'll come up to an ear that you can't even hardly reach then there's one right here and because it's never been you know walked through and pulled out the, the ears that you want to then make the next breed from and that's what we're going to do we're going to walk through how does, and that, how does that work you know when the ears are different sizes is it okay for harvesting can you yeah yeah, yeah. it'll be okay It'll be okay, but I think if we walk through, and again, open pollinator, there's no patents on it. You can bin run that, and you don't, it, it, it's what it is. It's open pollinated. So you can put this corn in the bin, clean it, pull it out, and go out and put it in your planter and plant corn. Yeah. Now, I've got so many thoughts here and ideas. I think, and I, and I need to find the, the lab, and maybe you know one for me, but I need to get, um, uh, nutrient density, and I I want to know the difference between non-GMO corn and the open pollinator corn, and maybe even GMO corn, and then I can go to a dairy, because see I I don't think about yield anymore, and and that's the way every farmer's success is based on his yield, but I'm looking at it as nutrient density per ton of whatever it is you're raising. So you go to the dairy and you say, look, you're buying corn that's only got 5% protein in it. And in our system, I can give you seven and a half or 8% protein. That's where I want to get to. Cool. 
See, and then that makes better milk that we can consume. And, and then, you know, it's just, it's just better everything. It just, it I just, like, I just like the idea of the genetic variability associated with that, you know, yeah. it, feel, it feels more resilient. Everything we learn about ecosystems is that genetic variability creates resilience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are not just adapting soy epigenetics, but also improving epiphyte and which you're going to have to help me on that, but epiphyte oh. populations that matches your context. So epiphytes, um, I probably should Google it because I'm going to say something stupid, but epiphytes are microorganisms, I think, that live kind of symbiotically with the plants and the roots. Mm. And, the and they can, a lot of times they're found to like help with uh, pathogen suppression or even like mycorrhizal types associations. Yeah, I'll look it up real quick. Yeah, Lou Myla, give us uh, give us a quick on um, on your your term there, epiphyte. Give us a quick definition, if you would, please. I believe it's a, plant, Myla... it's a plant that grows on another plant but is not parasitic, such as ferns, bromeliads, air plants, and orchids growing on tree trunks in tropical rainforests. So what I've heard about epiphytes and they can grow anywhere on the plant, and they're generally they're not generally there's some sort of symbiotic relationship going on even though sometimes we don't we can't quantify what that relationship is for instance in texas uh they found epiphytes in cotton that helped with um disease suppression yeah yeah so i think you know let's see where was i gosh my memory is so poor anymore um so i was talking with someone recently and they said endophytes epiphytes are plants endophytes is what he's actually thinking about sorry yeah do endophyte yeah i knew something was quite not not quite wrong right there and then sorry. um the, they they said there's a plant it's called a dot i think it's daughter d-o-d-d-e-r yeah daughter yeah now, and, daughter, daughter is uh, parasitic. Yeah, so that's one of those rare things, though, where uh, it, it needs a host, right? Yeah, yeah, daughter does. Yeah, it grows on, what does it grow on? Soybeans or something like that? I it is it, an agricultural pest, pest. Yeah, I don't remember. It's a plant. It doesn't photosynthesize. It's just like if you see it growing, it looks like hair out in the field yeah and I, I guess if you get it it's like you can't get rid of it type thing so yeah i don't yeah. know so an endophyte is often a bacterium or fungus that lives within a plant for at least part of its life cycle without causing apparent disease yeah and some of the research is showing that the endophytes are actually uh helping the plant uh, uh resist pathogens yeah and and lou myla i i I totally agree with you. I, yep, you're right. Yeah, she, the autocorrect <laughs> got tripped. Good old spell check got you tripped up there. That's okay, Lumila. It's all right. Um, but yes, you are exactly correct, Lumila, because I'm. I was going there next. I think with epigenetics, we're also going to get the microbes to adapt to our system as well. That's why, you know. I, I've got two Johnson Sioux reactors going and I need to get about 10 more going if, if I could ever get time, but I need to get at least two more going this fall because it takes about 12 months. But here's what I'm thinking. 
I, we're going to build these Sioux reactors out of everything that's within, within our farm, okay? So the theory there would be that the microbes are going to be inherent within the region I'm in. But I think it's okay to bring somebody else's product in as an augmentation to that and mix the two together. That's what I'm going to do. And try then to get the microbes more turned on that I don't think are fully turned on yet. And that's done with hormones or or stimulants or something. So those are the two things I'm going to spend a lot of my time on are epigenetics and that. Cool. Yeah. I think so, that's, those are two pretty good challenges to tackle. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it will be. Let's see what else we've got stacked up here. Um, or maybe that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's I don't it. see anything All else right. in chat. All right. So now I, I, I tell you, I want to go back to your soil health checklist, let's call it. Okay. Mm -hmm. You got 20 things. Is that what you said? 20? Or how many? Three. 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 Oh, three. We've already been over the three. I thought, okay. Yeah, I we're easy. The Soil Health Institute, we're trying to make it easy. So we do three, but one of the things, if we know the soil texture and the carb, the organic matter in the soil, the carbon concentration, we have um, a pedotransfer function, which is like an equation, that uh, so we can put the texture in and the carbon concentration in, and we can also estimate the increase in plant available water associated mm. with management change. So we have, that's, that's our fourth soil health measurement, but it doesn't require an extra measurement. So we're, we try to stick with the three and then there's four kind of interpretations associated with it. Okay. That makes total sense. So now let's walk, let's go through the water cycle then, you know, educate me here, explain how, you know, why we need good um, uh, aggregate stability and infiltration rates and what is the water, you know, take us through. Okay. All right. Now, now, now we're cooking, Rick, because I'm a soul physicist. I can do this. <laughs> okay. We're, we're no more nitrogen. We're talking water now. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Three important things about changing management and the water cycle, right? The first thing that we want to do is we want to capture water. We don't want it to run off. Mm -hmm. And if we can capture water more uniformly across the field, um, that's even better, right? Because then all, all the crops, the crop all the way across the field has the opportunity to have water. Right, okay. right. So first we want to capture it. So the important thing is, is aggregate stability. We don't want surface sealing. We want good soil structure. We want to capture that water. Okay, now we've captured the water. It's gone into the soil. So now we need good soil structure because that water needs to get in mm -hmm. and redistribute across the soil. And we know again and again and again, good soil structure facilitates that. And then thirdly, so we capture the water, we distribute it across the soil profile. And deep, deep is good, right? Because if we keep it shallow, it'll evaporate. So we wanted to get into the soil and store it for, bank it. If right. we can bank it deep, then as the roots grow, they, they, that's generally when they need the soil is later in the year when the roots are deeper. And then secondly, we can make the water more plant available. So the aggregate stability measurement that we measure helps us, gives us an indication of the capture and the redistribution. Mm. And then the second measurement, the plant available water is, tells us, because you can have a soil that holds the same mass of water, 
but based on the soil structure, oh. different masses of water could be available to the plant, right? So if you have a clay and you mush it all up like a mud pie and wet it up, versus if you had the same mass of clay in aggregates, yeah. There's going to be more plant available water in that aggregated clay than the mushed up clay. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then I'm assuming, uh, again, this is an assumption here. You're the soil scientist, not me. But in this same uh, environment that you just put us in, the nutrients become way more available too. Yeah, if you have good aggregates, then all the plant roots are all, you know, around the aggregates and they have, they can explore the soil. It's not spinning so up. It's not burning up its energy trying to find all this. It's right there, readily available. Right. And the microbes are happy, right? Because we haven't destroyed their home. So they have a really good environment. And when they're given the right substrate, like the photosynthate and things like that, they can start eating and they cycle that carbon. And when they yeah. cycle that carbon, they make the nutrients available. That's awesome. You make it sound, it, you make it simple for us to understand. Thank you. I, I Rick, agree. that's the only way I understand it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ellis Yoder, there are commercial microbial soil amendments, soil probiotics available to buy. How cost effective are these to use? Will using them improve soil health? There you go. Well, this is what I like to say. If you drank probiotics every day, would you be healthy? Or if you ran and ate broccoli every day, would you be healthy? Mm -hmm. yeah. So you uh, could eat pizza, you can sit around and watch TV, and you can drink a Yakult every day. Odds are it's not that's not what's going to do it for you. Yeah. Maybe if you're running and eating broccoli and then you have your Yakult, that it might help you, but the Yakult alone ain't going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, this goes back to everything we all talk about balance. We've got to get to balance. That's what it's yeah. all about. It's about the environment, right? Like you can add whatever you want to the soil, but if it doesn't have the environment to grow and do what yeah. it needs to do, then it's not yeah. going to survive. And I just like, you know, Americans, we are so bad. We're always looking for that pill, right? You, yeah. uh, you know, your blood pressure is too high, take a pill, your hair is not shiny enough, take a pill, take a vitamin. But really what we know, the real, the real work is in exercise and eating right. Yeah. So yeah. And you know, what? augment. <laughs> and you, you just set me up because I'm going to go ahead and talk about it real quick right now. Again, Chris, Dr. Christine and I have never met. We don't know a lot about each other. Um, I I did not take care of myself when I was younger. I basically ate myself into being a type two diabetic. And because of that, I was going to be on insulin and metformin. And I said, no way am I doing that. So I changed my diet. I exercise a, a little bit. My wife has me on a pretty strict diet. And because of all that, I am no longer on insulin or metformin. So, yeah, so it can be done. It, it, and, and we have to understand, I mean, when you're 25, it's not easy, is you it, Rick? Imper you're impervious to the world when you're 25. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I'm surrounded by 25 year olds who are off screen. You can't see. And the world is yours, you know, but believe me, when you get to be my age now, it starts to catch up. So we have to, and, and the same things are going on in the soil that are going on in our guts. So we have to treat them 
identically. Yeah, that's right. So I'm not against um, adding um, probiotics or microstimulants to the yeah. soil, but yeah. I but the evidence suggests that there are other things that are more effective and have measurable and long lasting effects. Yeah, and and my guess would be the absolute best thing is wide diverse cover crop package to feed multiple species of microbes. I mean that yeah. that's that's the whole answer. Yeah, and don't over apply nitrogen. Yeah. And and don't and you know reduce tillage when you can. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about depth of tillage or or speed of tillage does all does this matter well i'm not an engineer um but i think you know the more disruptive it is the worse it is yeah but, so i do think i do think there is something to um you know some of these like less invasive tillages yeah i don't know yeah. what they are because again i'm not an ag engineer i haven't studied you know, because I know some of these vertical tillers, they can still really shatter and powder the oh, soil. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. they're like. And, and I think we're also. <laughs> yeah, and I think we're also talking about acute versus chronic here. You know, you know, just take the every year out and maybe maybe once in a while or something. But we have to be good stewards too. I mean that that little bit of tiller, and I I try to be transparent and open with everything I'm doing. And we had to till a little bit this year, but I had a noxious weed that was going to get out of control, Canada thistle. You cannot let that go because I'm not being a good steward. So we had to get some tillage and we've got it under control and we move on. Yeah, we, we broke the system for a little bit, but it's going to, it's also going to heal quick as we feed it back with something else. Yeah, and Rick, I, I was in an area, sand, sandy loam soil, so not in the Midwest, and I was out on a field that was organic, mm -hmm. and I think it was even extreme for organic, but they um, they tilled 11 times a year oh, for weed control. I, I know, I know. I couldn't, I couldn't get a shovel into that soil. No. It was concrete, and then I was just like, oh my gosh, and then I walked over to the other pasture and it was in conservation tillage which is what you looks like conventional it is conventional tillage yeah. like most nobody moldboard hardly anyone moldboards anymore conventional tillage is conservation tillage and i walked over to that conservation tillage field and it looked great <laughs> it yeah. had aggregates it had clumps it wasn't concrete yeah. i could get the shovel in so even that those are two extreme those are probably still conventional examples, but even just the doing a chisel once a year, there was a huge difference between that and 13 tillage passes. I know. <laughs> so, I, I you know. know, tillage isn't the, I mean, it isn't the worst thing you can do to the soil, but it's all about moderation yeah. and you till for a reason. You don't till recreationally, right? And it, you know, it's the same with cover crops. Our agronomist, um, who I admire extremely, um, David Lamb, and he works in our cotton program. And he will always tell people, don't cover crop to cover crop. Tell me what your problem is yeah. and let's cover crop to solve a problem because that's a lot more um, helpful to you as an agronomist and a farmer than just saying, oh, I'm going to cover crop and I'm going to put in this because that's what I got to do, you know? Yeah. Because, and it's the same with tillage, right? If you got a problem, 
and tillage is your tool to solve the problem, then you're going to have to use it. But just be judicious and think about other ways, you know, work forward. You know, this year you may have had to till, right? But I guarantee you, you're doing other things to keep that thistle out. Yeah. And crop rotations, different yeah. kinds of covers, you know, you'll figure it out. We came right behind all that tillage with 50 pounds to the acre of buckwheat, and it absolutely crushed it, just smothered it. And yeah. we got buckwheat, now we got a buckwheat crop. So yeah, and yeah. now you got to just keep those thistle seeds from um, how what how long do they? Are they like two year old? Those seeds are viable they, for two years. They might be viable for two years. So I got to get a yeah. good cover crop out this fall. So you yeah. you can't let that soil get exposed, right? Or that thistle come back. And so that's your other tool. Right. And you try that. And if you're successful, you won't have to till. And if you have a dry year, you might have to do it again and try again, right? It's it's iterative. Right. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. We've been about an hour and 15 minutes. What what have we missed here? What take us home, closing thoughts. What 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 do you think about this evening? What do you think? Um, it was a real pleasure to meet you. I was very nervous about this because I didn't know you and I didn't know how this was going to go, but it's been a, a pleasant hour and 15 yeah. minutes. I, I appreciate the opportunity. I always love to get to talk about soil to people. So thank you, you so much for letting me indulge. <laughs> you are so happy about it and you can tell it's your passion. So I, I thank you for being in this business and and guiding and directing uh, all of us toward, you know, goals that are going to be successful. So thank you. Yeah. And thanks for telling me all of your stories. I've learned so much. I, yeah. I love talking with folks that actually do work because, you know, I, I just learn something every time. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. Well, thank you. You made this. We're going to have you on again because there's so much more we can talk about. But I really enjoyed doctor how you brought things down to where we can understand it so thank you thank you very much okay take care rick yeah thank you bye 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 bye